Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Hoover Harris, editor of DegreeOrNotDegree.com, and with me today is Dr. Alex Bentley, who is a professor and chair of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Tennessee. He's here to discuss his book, The Acceleration of Cultural Change from Ancestors to Algorithms, which he co-authored with Michael O'Brien, who is the provost at Texas A&M San Antonio. Alex, thanks for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. Before we talk about the book, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, um, I, uh, I'm a professor of anthropology at University of Tennessee and here in Knoxville. I live in Knoxville. Uh, but I spent a, a good part of my adult life and my career in England. Uh, my first job was at uh, University College London, and then I moved up to uh, an anthropology department up at Durham University, up in the northeast of England. And uh, I finished, actually, as a professor and department head at University of Bristol as the chair of the uh, archaeology and anthropology department there. So um, it's really good to be back uh, in the United States. I'm originally from Wisconsin, um, and it's fantastic to be living in Tennessee. Um, and uh, our, our department here in Tennessee is known a lot for its uh, forensic science and uh, the so-called body farm. So I'm enjoying that as well. What types of archaeological projects have you engaged in in the past? Um, I, the first big dig I went on, uh, well, actually, I, I learned to dig from somebody right here at Knoxville uh, in 1993. It was Thomas Jefferson's Poplar Forest. I joined a summer school there. As an archaeologist, um, I've been out to a, a huge kind of 1930s uh, ancient uh, civilization site uh, at called Harappa in the Indus Valley um, in the on the Indian subcontinent. And I spoke Hindi Urdu while I was there in 1999, and you know, uh, massive um, uh, uh, digs of many stories high and people. Um, passing huge um, uh, containers of soil hand in hand to each other to get to to, to get out what we were excavating, um, and uh, then later I specialized actually in the the uh, early farming period called the Neolithic of Europe, about five thousand BC, when people were just starting to to cultivate crops and and um, herd domestic animals and and live in villages rather than hunt to hunt and gather. Uh, so that's my, and my archaeology is focused mainly on skeletons and uh, measuring uh, chemicals in the skeletons that are indicative of diet and uh, migration and so on. Wow. Very interesting. Well, the book is very interesting. Again, the main title is The Acceleration of Cultural Change. It's a fairly short book, but it's very broad at the same time. There's an incredible number of subjects and, and topics crammed into every page, it seems. Let's start 
I suppose, with why you wrote it. You co-wrote it with Michael O'Brien. You might want to tell us a little bit about him, too. What prompted you two to partner and, and write about this subject? Mike O'Brien is also an archaeologist, but he um, his specialty is North America. But he and I met because we were both interested in this new field called cultural evolution, um, which was pretty new about 15 years ago. And now it's now it has a big annual conference and everything. It's it's a, it's a and um, even a, a a dedicated center at, in uh, Germany called the Max Planck uh, Center. But he, uh, Mike O'Brien, was dean at uh, arts and science at University of Missouri for ten years, and he and I met at a at a conference about culture evolution, and we really hit it off, and we're very good friends now. Uh, we see each other, our family see each other over the holidays and so on. And but but we love to collaborate with each other. And what we have in common was to think about how culture changes in traditional societies. So how did culture change in 5000 BC in the Neolithic of Europe? Or how did it change among the first hunter-gatherers of, of North America? And what can we learn from traditional anthropology about that? And so our, in our field, our examples and our thinking is a lot about social learning, how people learn their skills for hunting or for cultivating crops from each other, from an expert in the community, and in small groups. Um, and in, in thinking a lot about those kinds of subjects, I think what... Uh, what has struck me over the last 15 years is how different that kind of traditional learning, learning by apprenticeship, learning a craft, learning how to make a stone tool from somebody who has made it for decades, and then you will teach your child how to make that same stone tool and so on. And, and thinking about how different that is from pop culture, from the uh, exponential growth in technology, the, from social media, and, and all that all that we have come to internalize is almost seeming normal about our lives and constant flux and change. This was, um, this was not even remotely the norm in the past. Change was not remotely the norm. And that's, I think, what prompted um, us to write this book together was the difference between, say, the last 30,000 years of human existence versus the last 10 years. Uh, being very different from each other. You have a great way of describing that difference in the preface. I, I would call it your main thesis, or you call it your central premise. Let me just read this, and I'll ask you to elaborate on it. You've already started to explain this, but you write, our central premise is that the shape of cultural transmission has changed dramatically over recent decades from one that is thin and deep to one that is shallow and broad. Can you explain the difference in what you mean by thin and deep versus shallow and broad? So uh, thin and deep, I mean that by thin is, I mean, um, thin in terms of population. So people will have uh, lived in small communities, maybe villages of 30 or 100 people, uh, probably more like 30. And they learned traditions that had been passed down to them from previous generations and previous generations and traditions and ways of doing things that were that were typically so old, you would have no consciousness of, of change. A couple of examples are uh, folk tales. There, there are folk tales that we know, like Little Red Riding Hood or um, uh, Grimm's fairy tales and, and the like, 
which are thousands of years old. They were retold from parents to children for thousands of years and changed very little. They spread across the Eurasian continent from you know, Eastern Asia all the way to Western Europe. Um, and they're recognizably they're similar across the continent, thousands of years old. Um, when we look at in archaeological villages, like one called Shatalhuyuk in uh, modern-day Turkey, one of the first villages of farming communities about 8,000 years ago, people lived in mud brick houses on top of each other. They, they buried their, their relatives under the kitchen floor, um, and they replastered their walls, um, you know, hundreds of times in their lifetime, and they, they just herded sheep and goats and cultivated lentils. Um, and, and, and to them, change would, they, they just would have no conception of change the way we do, as you just do things as, as you do them. I mean, it, with the exception of, well, we replastered the wall um, for our seventh time this year. That's the extent of change, or maybe there were marriages and so on. So that's long and thin. And the other thing about long and thin is we're constant. We're, we're conscious of who is the expert on what in our in our community. So I have anthropologists uh, colleagues who work out on the islands of Fiji in the South Pacific, and they ask people, "Who is the expert in, in a small traditional uh, village? Who's the expert on yam cultivation in your village?" And they they name they names they name one of the women in their village. Um, who's who's the best fisherman? Who would you ask about fishing, spear fishing? And and they all pretty much point to the same person or a couple of people. Experts well understood um, and and known personally. So now think about the the modern online world that we all live in. Um, it's very wide and fat. Many of the things that we discuss um, are yesterday's news, and we we all know that, or the you know the things about very recent changes that are very recent and they're global. And so we're so often talking about global changes that are very rapid, uh, you know, within the last week or day or year. Um, and, and they're worldwide or at least countrywide. And that's really the essential difference between long and thin and and, uh, short and wide. So with the long and thin, the long and deep, there's a consistency in patterns and meaning, a, a slowness, a deep slowness in change. There are distinct authorities. There's very slow, deliberate transmission of cultural patterns, and we're basically losing all of that now. Is that the point? Yeah, and you know, one of the um, one of the uh, advantages of the long and thin pattern for us. Um, in human history and prehistory was that the culture had a chance to sort of fine tune itself to the needs of the society as this change was so slow. So we have an example that we use in the book, the Acheulean hand axe. That, that was a stone tool that it's actually dates back to pre-humans. It dates back to Homo erectus. Uh, That stone tool persisted without changing much for over a million years. And that's because it was so adaptive. It was so useful for um, uh, presumably cutting carcasses, for cutting uh, other wood um, and other materials. And just it was sort of a a prehistoric uh, jackknife, um, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, And 
the, the change was so slow that, that that tool had a chance to optimize for the needs of the, the hominids that were using it. And, you know, we see the same thing in, in the uh, kinds of technologies people used for early farming and hunting and gathering. They're, they're pretty much optimal for the purposes that, that people have had. But now uh, change is so fast that you wonder, and I'm sure a lot of people wonder, if what we're doing is really optimal um, or, or even really solving problems the way that culture used to do. Culture, the, one of the purposes of culture has been for human beings, it's the secret to our success uh, because it solves problems for us. And it solves problems for us because we inherit the wisdom of of many, many, many generations over time, which have been trying to solve problems, um, farm the land or adjust to an environment, um, uh, subsist and survive, uh, cooperate, those kinds of things. Those are ways that culture solves problems for us. And if it's changing so fast, and if it's not local, then it might be very difficult for our cultural decisions to solve our problems. You mentioned the endurance of certain fables such as Little Red Riding Hood. And I was amazed when I read the book to see how old that is, thousands of years old, as you say. I wonder what conclusions you draw when you look at fables like that and their persistence. And as you explain in the book, the consistency of that particular narrative pattern across cultures. As an anthropologist, what do you conclude when you see the persistence and prevalence of of these certain fables, what does that tell you about cultural transmission and how humans pass on important knowledge? What it tells you is it gives you a clue about what about the the differential survival of aspects of of uh, culture. So you can imagine over those thousands of years, people inventing new components to the story, uh, little local variations, and a lot of a lot of those local variations just never survive past the next generation. And over time, the, the, the process of, you know, uh, telling these stories to your children and your children need to, they need to find them interesting or you're never going to tell them again. Um, so the children are sort of doing the selecting by, by being attentive or not. And that separates the wheat from the chaff over time. And so we find, my, it was a colleague of mine who did that study, um, you find that certain elements persist very well over time. Like people like pe- uh, people like minimally counterintuitive uh, aspects to a story, things that are somewhat surprising but not not outlandish or ridiculous. And you know there are aspects to Little Red Riding Hood that are like that, like um, the the uh, excavating the grandmother out of the, the wolf's belly, for example, um, and. One of, I had an idea related to this. There's, there's, a, there's a kind of branch of experimental uh, cultural science called transmission chains where they give a, a message to somebody and say, okay, you tell this message to the next person. It's like Chinese whispers um, or, uh, sorry, telephone. Mm-hmm. Um, you tell this message to, to somebody and they tell it to somebody and then they tell it to somebody. And what you see is by the end of this uh, game of telephone, the message that makes it to the other side, let's say it's eight people, are the really salient aspects of that message. And so I always thought it would be a kind of a fun way to do, um, to generate advertisements 
if somebody had like a jingle or a slogan or something, I'd just send it through one of those message chains and see what come out the other side. And I'd say, okay, this is, this is the best part of your message, whatever got retained in that game of telephone. But culture, those folk tales have done the same thing. So imagine when you're telling your, if you're telling your children the Little Red Riding Hood story, you can appreciate that these are elements of that folk tale that have made it through hundreds of generations of retelling since um, prehistoric times. So they've survived the telephone game on a large scale, in a sense. Yeah. And I wanted to draw a distinction. Yeah, they do. And and some of my colleagues call these elements attractors. They they keep, you know, the the kind of common elements that that uh, you might know you, you know about as well as I do, Hoover, that you know, there there are many common plot elements to stories that make them successful. And those are sort of vetted by generations after generations. But I did want to draw a distinction between something like a folk tale, which is static to something that builds over time like technology mm-hmm. and that's a that's a different animal because obviously technologies don't you know they don't just remain static for for hundreds of thousands of years they build over time and that's that's something that's hit such a stage of acceleration now that uh, we're going to have to come up with new ways of of, of keeping up And I do have some examples of that. Yeah. Maybe before we get to those examples, we should go back to your hand axe just to make that a counterpoint. And I'm curious as to why it stayed the same for, what did you say, a million years, hundreds of thousands of years? So just for the listeners, if they don't know, if they missed this class, the Acheulean hand axe is an oblong rock that fits in your hand that you or I could probably nap in our backyards in a few hours with some practice, right? It's a simple yeah, tool. Yeah. And it, it remained the same for many, many generations and many, many cultures, as I understand it. Why didn't that evolve more? Uh, you know, why didn't somebody add a wooden handle or whatever? Why did this thing persist for so long in its basic form? Well, the, the first reason is that any, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty kind of optimal shape. Like think about things that have, haven't really evolved much, like a hammer or a pair of pliers, or, um, you know, a, a garlic press. People come up with newfangled ones, and you give them to people for Christmas, and nobody ever uses them because you, you, you can't improve upon it. I think that's, I think actually that's what one thing about the Acheulean hand axe. But the other thing is, the Acheulean hand axe is from about 1.4 million years ago to several hundred thousand years ago. And we actually go through um, a, a, you know, a, a progression of even of human, uh, pre-human species during that time. Uh, but what happens for human cultural evolution after that is we, st- we start to get the ability to cumulatively build on our technology. So instead of, you know, you mentioned a wooden handle, well, things like the bow and arrow or uh, a projectile points, arrow points that have a, have a wooden, you, you know, are hafted onto a, 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 a piece of wood, you know, to be uh, shot as a javelin or some, thrown as a javelin or shot as a, as a bow. And then later, you know, multi tools that have multiple parts to them. Once that starts happening, then we get, then we get into a process where parts of a 
tools of technology can then be used to assemble other technologies. And that's continued to this, to this day. You know, uh, economists write about how uh, a car, for example, is just, you know, just contains uh, a, a whole number of other inventions that used to be standalone inventions. And we keep, and technology just keeps recomb- is a, is a recombination of, of previous technologies and building on that. So that, that was a crucial transition time for human beings when we actually started to accumulate culture over time rather than just replicating it from one generation to the next. And so that's why the Shulian hand axe, I think, was so long lived. But then we, then we enter a period where, where we can start to combine technologies and make more complex technologies. And that, and that becomes um, a progressive pro- pro- process that's also uh, prone to acceleration because it's kind of like a, a doubling kind of effect. You know, once you put two and two together, then you're putting two pairs together for four. And, you know, there's sort of a, there's an acceleration to that. Okay, so you anticipated my next question. I was about to ask if this compounding of technologies creates an exponential change effect, and you're saying it does. So if we imagine a chart during the hand axe phase, it's pretty flat, but as these technologies compound, we start to slope upwards, and I I guess we're on that steep vertical slope now. Is that an accurate way to describe your thinking? That's right. Um, There's an economist named Eric Beinhocker. He used to show a a plot just like that. Um, and it, it, it's the time scale is like 2 million years or something. And he's counting the number of SKUs, um, those, um, shopping units, you know, the number of different, and he he talks about, or the number of, the number of tools that we have or, or different objects that we have in our life. And so he kind of estimates for hunter gatherers 2 million years ago, um, I don't know, 10, maybe a dozen. And then you think about the typical Walmart these days has like 700,000 SKUs <laughs> or something. And it's just a crazy curve. It actually looks like it just goes straight up at, um, in the last 2,000 years. Um, and it's a great diagram that shows the, the kind of not, uh, not only that acceleration of technology, but the, just the overload that we experience now. You know, you think about well, what used to sort out the needs that we had, well, we would teach them to our children, but now the, the, the and for a long time, obviously there's no, there's no one person who's in command of even a tiny portion of the technology that he or she uses in a, on, on a daily basis. And that's, that's another key to this transition because it's also happening now in our social lives or in our cultural lives. We've, our parents and their parents, and uh, we've long lived in a world where no one person or even a group of people could command the technology that we use in our daily lives. But but they could probably command their social engagements. But now we have people with Twitter accounts that have you know maybe thousands of followers. Um, that's uh, and and that's that's not something that a human being could could have ever maintained before that technology made it possible. Well, you've already given a couple of modern examples, and and you said you wanted to cite some other examples. So let's talk about those. And one thing I love about the book, by the way, is the number of examples in it. (laughs) Thank you. We we love to go through these examples because um, one of the main themes is is, um, 
the diversification of cultural knowledge is one is undergo has on, undergone one of these exponential curves and an exponential curve is very slow until suddenly it becomes very fast or it feels very sudden once the doubling is actually like about the size of what you thought you knew before um and uh, here's one example uh scientific publishing is one example there are in, you know, in, in the old days of science, we think of individuals like Marie Curie or, or Darwin or Einstein and so on. And, um, and writing a, you know, I, even I remember the days when you wrote a, when you wrote an academic paper, you put it in an envelope and you sent it to a journal and then they would send it out um, by mail to some reviewers and so on. Uh, now we, now we do all this online. Um, and there are about 20 uh, two and a half million scientific papers published every year. Um, and even, even in a subfield, even, even if you're an archaeologist or a, a, a nuclear physicist or a doctor, you, you can't command all of the scientific literature that's being published on your subject, even if it's, for, even if it's very narrow. And another example of the exponential nature of this is there are a lot of these open uh, open access journals, um, and they publish scientific papers, and you don't need a subscription to go look at them. Like one of these journals is called PLOS One, Public Library of Science One. In 2007, they published about 1,200 papers. That's quite a bit. Uh, you know, that's uh, um, 100 papers a month. But um, but in in recent years, it's well over 20,000 papers wow. a year. That's just, that's just a one journal. And there are now 30, about 30,000 peer reviewed academic journals. Those are the journals, not the papers. Um, and it's, it's, it's grown exponentially. Like I said, from 1200 in 2007 to 20,000 and maybe 2017. So 10 years, um, for one journal, it's grown exponentially. And it's diversified to an extent where there's a journal on almost every subject. I used to laugh because there was a journal of happiness studies, but that's that's not even close to how obscure the journals get nowadays. Um, 30,000 of them. And that has a couple of effects. One is that we all, um, I have a friend in genetics who he just has a, he has an algorithm like a Twitter bot actually just read scan journal articles for him and and he'll they'll it'll retweet the ones that fall within his interest you know that has the keywords that that he's looking for and then the other thing is that we're all now hyper focused on on um single you know the highest ranked journals like science or nature um there's one called proceedings of the national academy of sciences and everybody's focused on those because we're sort of assuming that the best the best science will get to the top um, and in a way that is like us trying to look for the experts. Like, remember I mentioned out on the Fijian islands, who's the best fisherman? Oh, he is. Who's the best yam cultivator? Oh, she's, she, she knows everything about yams. And we're all trying to do that. Um, and the shortcut we take is we look to central hubs of information, like a big prestigious science journal or maybe we have our preferred media site or media media purveyor or something like that. And so ironically, um, given all the diversity there is out there, one of the things we see is that people are actually hyper, 
more and more focused um, towards massive central hubs of information as opposed to getting local knowledge from around themselves. And again, this is another thing that's um, uh, uh, reinforcing that wide and shallow aspect of cultural change now rather than uh, thin and narrow. So we're flooded with minutiae and almost infinite amounts of knowledge, but you still see a craving and that human tendency to go back to core knowledge and, and core principles. Yeah, and, and a craving to have some kind of expert to follow. But the problem is we don't know who the experts are anymore. We want to trust an expert, but you know how many, how many pieces of phishing spam do you get in your email box at somebody professing to be an expert? Um, and and all sorts of, there are all sorts of reasons why it's so very difficult to recognize true expertise. Um, I won't I won't mention the words fake news in this interview because <laughs> but but what what that is is an expression of people you know we don't know whom to trust we don't know who is the expert and. And that's not just a, a momentary uh, aspect of our political climate right now. That's that's an aspect of information overload, and us not having we don't. It, it's not like we live in a village with these people, with people we call experts for most of our lives, um, or that we're inheriting information that we trust because it is what we do. It just we don't even question it. We're now having to be critical about just about everything that comes across our desk because it comes it comes from people we don't know and places uh, maybe places or or centers we've never been to and we we don't have any basis to judge whether something is um, is good or bad and it's there was a study last year I think after we published this book there was a study that showed that um, false um, False messages on Twitter spread much farther and faster than true information spreads on on Twitter. Um, you know, it gets shared very rapidly, and that's uh, you know that that's something we should think about for our times because that's that's nothing uh, prehistoric people would would hardly understand that except except when they were gossiping. Mm-hmm. And while we're framing this problem, let's talk about Dunbar's number for a moment. And you were just mentioning. Twitter and social media where you're connected to thousands of people. What is Dunbar's number and what does that tell us about how our minds work and our capacity to interact with other people? So Robin Dunbar, who's an anthropologist at Oxford University in England, uh, in the 1990s, he was actually trying to figure out how um, how big were early hominid pre-human social groups. And he... Um, he, he found this relationship among primates, of which these hominids are, uh, you know, are, are part. Um, in, in primates, in the primate kingdom, there's a relationship between the size of the social group, how many, how many friends and kin you associate with, and the size of the brain. It's actually the size of the neocortex portion of the brain. And he took what he's trying to do is is we want to figure out from you know all you get in in paleoarchaeology paleoanthropology is the the brain size the number of cubic centimeters in the brain and he was trying to equate that cubic centimeter measurement with group size in the past and he used this relationship that he 
developed by looking at primates and saw that the larger the brain, the larger the social group of the primates, you know, baboons and macaques and gorillas. And then he just extrapolated it out to the brain size of uh, prehistoric hominids, like let's say 900 cubic centimeters. Or for a human, humans, it's, uh, you know, 1200 cubic centimeters or so, and, and even more so for Neanderthals. And then he was able to make an estimate. And that estimate once you get to our brain size is about 150 uh, individuals that we're capable of handling as our social relationships based on the size of our brains. And the reason that's so cool and so interesting is that that's all he was trying to do is uh, just get some relationship between brain size and, and group size hundreds of thousands of years ago. But a, a recent, so his number is 150. And a recent study by Pew shows that the average, uh, at least as of 2015, the average uh, person has about 145, 150 friends on Facebook. The average Twitter, That's great. Uh, Instagram has about 145, 150 followers, something like that. It's just incredible. Who would have thought that 25 years ago, this number would predict how many followers we have on Facebook. Um, but of course, a lot of people have um, 10, hundred thousand times that many followers. And that means that we're not talking about relationships anymore. Social media connections, if they're in those kinds of numbers, they're not, they're not relationships. Um, and so what are we actually doing on social media? Should we even call it social media if, um, mm. if it's not predicated on relationships? So we have a good sense of what our capacity really is as far as interacting with others. We've come a long way from having a few key stories told by the wise man chanting around the fire. We've come a long way from having to learn how to use five or 10 tools in our lifetimes and, and passing those down and the technical knowledge that goes with those. We're surrounded by compounding technologies, rapidly changing information, an abundance of journals and science and knowledge. So all that leads to the big question of, can, can we as humans handle this? Is all of this necessarily a bad thing? And then the other big question I think is what, what can we do about it if it is a bad thing? Well, um, I, I think we're going to need help from artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So there's my friend. Siri uh, will save us. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> because the, the basic problem is that we don't have with information overload, you can't separate the wheat from the chaff. How do you know good science from bad science when you're when there's you know two thousand papers that are in your field that you're supposed to read or about any given subject? I have a friend who I, I said who um, he programmed a Twitter bot, but the, all the Twitter bot does is retweet um, articles that are of interest to him. We need to do more, and one of the things I like to think about. Um, the vast majority of scientific papers never get cited even once. Um, citing means, you know, somebody else writes a paper and then puts, puts that paper in the bibliography. Most, most scientific papers never get cited. Um, and some pa scientific papers get cited tens of thousands of times. So it's, very, uh, it's, it's, it, it's a very unequal relationship. 
but that's that has a lot to do with human beings um, only being able to handle so much, and so they they focus. They look at what other people are focusing on, and we focus on the same things. Ooh, that paper got cited. Ooh, I'm, I'm going to read it too, and and I'll probably cite it. And there's a there's a preferential advantage to popularity. What what becomes popular tends to become even more popular. But a AI doesn't have to read papers that way. AI, and I have I have colleagues who who use um, computers to read papers and understand what the hypothesis is in the paper. Let's say it's about a a, a reaction, a chemical reaction, or a, a a biochemical process in the body, and they can they can say, oh, ten papers favor this hypothesis, and only one uh, falsifies it. So probably the hypothesis is true and and the ai will just keep going like that and 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 reading papers and creating kind of a web of hypotheses and, and whether they it, it supports one relationship or another um and so what ai can do is reestablish a form of selection on our knowledge and help to separate the the wheat from the chaff again uh, whereas human beings are stuck, um, you know, just the tip of the iceberg and also just relying a lot on copying other people to, uh, to, to, you know, to understand what's important or what's true. And, and AI doesn't have to do that. It also has the capacity to read through thousands or the millions of papers that are, that are produced and, and, and test them against each other. And I, I think that's actually going to be necessary um, to deal with, uh, you know, the, the, the million, literally millions of scientific papers that are produced per year or the 20,000 children's books that are, that are printed every year. And yet, you know, we still tell our children uh, Little Red Riding Hood, a lot of us do, Mm -hmm. even though there's so much to choose from. It's nice to hear someone speak positively about AI for once. Usually when we hear about AI, it's in the context of how long before we're all submitting to our robot overlords, but you're giving good examples of how this could actually be a tool, a modern day hand ax to help us uh, get through our, our daily activities. And I think in the book, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you hinted there could even be a, a deceleration at some point. There might be a contraction in response to this acceleration and expansion. Is that a possibility? Yeah. And, um, there's already the one counterintuitive aspect about this acceleration of cultural change is the acceleration occurs when things come, things can combine and then combine and, and, and then bigger pieces can combine that sort of exponential change that we've been talking about. Uh, but what, what is at the top of the pop chart? shall we say, um, we talked about things that don't combine like little red riding hood or take the example of baby names um, or pop songs, or you know, they don't. Pop songs don't get any bigger. Or they don't get any more complex. Arguably, the, the names we give our children, or the, the clothes we wear, things like this, they don't get more and more complex. Um, and with those things, which I think about as more popular culture, the change the change isn't really accelerating. You know, you, if you look at how many baby names came through the top ten in the last decade it'd be fairly similar to the number of baby names that went through the top 10 in the 1950s, maybe a little bit higher, but not like this kind of exponential change that we're talking about. So in, in some ways, the popular culture or in 
um, artistic culture, if you're focused on, especially if you're focused on the, you know, the, the, the top end of the popularity scale, the, the change isn't, is, it hasn't, isn't really going to accelerate that much. If, if we integrate, um, when we talk about the, the kinds of, the other kinds of aspects that are growing exponentially, like knowledge and science and, uh, published knowledge and so, and technology and so on, when we start to incorporate AI technologies that help us sort through all that, um, I think there'll be a, a, a deceleration of, of our perception of change as well. Because if we acquire the ability to better select the best, um, you know, the, 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 the best things that are being invented, then we're, then we're focused on those and the, and the rate of change uh, in in terms of the very best is going to be much slower than the, the the rate of change we feel when we're just deluged with everything. I'm thinking of how on my phone, of course, we can now combine all of our multiple email accounts into one location and one feed. And then beyond that, I know with the Outlook app, for example, it gets smart about how you interact with it and it separates the chaff from the wheat. And it's not I guess that's AI of a sort, but that just came to mind as you were describing this coalescing of, yeah. of information. It's a silly and example, but no, that's a great example because w- one of the ways that that uh, a lot of social scientists are are aggregating information um, is doing just that. So, for example, um, a good predictor of the rate of heart disease or heart attacks. Um, in a county, in a U.S. county, is actually the mm-hmm. frequency of hostile words used on Twitter in that county. Um, so people can, researchers can go through and look at, you know, they just have a list of words that connote hostility. They, they, you just get that off the shelf, so to speak. And you just count through the tweets that, are, that have, uh, you know, uh, locations on them and just count the differences in how much these hostile words are used by county, it turns out this predicts heart disease as well as any any other kinds of health statistics that are out there. Um, the the hostility words on Twitter, and th- that's an example of looking for aggregate patterns in a huge volume of data. We're talking about obviously tens of uh, millions of tweets in a study like that. Um, you know, which you would make no sense to you if you're looking at them really granularly, but if you look at them in an aggregate sense, you can come up with very uh, sensible and simple kinds of insights um, that 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 pull out the information that resides in that huge mass of data. That's fascinating. It used to be the full moon that was the warning, and now it's the Twitter verbiage patterns. That's just amazing. It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to ask you about education and and how your research and and what the implications are of your research on education. And and really, I know you come at this as a professor who has daily obligations in the classroom. And you gave examples, even in your own academic career of, I don't know, two or three decades, whatever it is, you've seen a lot of changes moving from snail mail with the journal process and so forth and the expansion of journal articles. You've got these poor young students who are, are in the midst of this peak acceleration, it seems, of cultural change and and the thinness uh, or the shallowness and the breadth, rather, of, of our modern cultural transmission. Are there any guidelines for your teaching or for implications for higher education or recommendations based on where we are 
in cultural evolution right now? Well, I can I can speak from personal experience, really, mainly. One is that I still I still really believe in teaching in small groups, um, or small groups being a classroom in person. I be, I believe that the best education is is still had when you're present in the classroom with with the with the professor. Now I know a lot of people their only way of maybe getting a degree is an online degree, and I'm not trying to say we shouldn't do that, but um, I do think the best kind of education is in the classroom with an instructor. But the other thing is that um, we're now at the point where there's intra-generational change in social media technology. So I asked my students, how many of you have younger siblings who use a different social media platform than you do? And most of them raise their hand. And that's, that's, you know, remember the, we remember the old phrase, the medium is the message. I think it was. Um, but the fact that siblings, um, actually have different ways of communicating with their friends. And of course, every social media platform has a different set of algorithms for how they, how, how they manipulate that communication or how they manipulate the information that comes in. So, so we have literally a, a difference in the young, for young people, they, they experience literally a difference in cultural transmission, not just from their parents' generation or my generation, but even from their own even within their own generation. And they have to think very carefully about what to study and what careers to plan for. So I was teaching a class this year and I said, you know, how any of you, there were a lot of pre-med students in the class. And I said, are any of you thinking about being a, becoming a radiologist? And um, I'm not, maybe one or two raised their hand, but, but um, I said, you know, rethink that because it's a, the, that's one of the, you know, recognizing the patterns from x-rays is one of the things that's probably going to be taken over by artificial intelligence pretty soon. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's not a viable career. You're going to have to. And I feel I really feel for them because, um, you know, how can you be a sophomore or junior in college and having to think on the fly about how a technology might make what you've just been studying, you know, uh, obsolete? Um, it's a real challenge for them, but they, they do have to get in the habit of thinking about change and how to anticipate it and also how to work with people with different skills, like never before. Um, so, you know, and, and so, you know, they may, if they want to be successful in a kind of a business or a startup, they're going to have to work with probably computer programmers or people and managers and people with a whole different set of skills. Um, and they can't survive without that, in, in my opinion, because they will almost certainly be working on a team, no matter what they do. They'll be working on a team of people with um, a vast array of skills, and they have to learn to at least be able to communicate with people with very different skills so that the team can come to d- together and produce something. And, um, you know, those are things that's hard to teach, but I think we ought to be committed to teaching that kind of interdisciplinary or interspecialism um, teamwork skill and the ability to anticipate and prepare for technological change that'll, that'll make their 
uh, career space uh, different as they go. You know, they're going to have several careers probably in their in their lifetime, and that's mm-hmm. something that older people and certainly my parents' generation didn't have to worry about so much. Very good. Well, before I let you go, I'd like to hear what you're planning on working on next. Do you have any other big projects or books or research in the works? Um, we have another book. We really like this MIT Press series, these um, these sort of thin uh, design technology business and life series. So we're actually working on another one uh, for next year called um, uh, The Importance of Small Decisions. Um, and um, I've been working recently on understanding, tr- trying to understand and predict how information spreads on Twitter. We've also been uh, working a little bit on, um, on, on trying to recognize patterns of the spread of false information as opposed to true information on Twitter without knowing necessarily whether it's false or true objectively. But does, twi- does true information spread with a different pattern? than false information. And we're using a lot of the insights that from things we discuss in this book. That sounds very relevant. And we know a lot of executives at the social media companies are wrestling with that right now. So good for you. Very timely. Well, I jotted down a list of some of the many diverse topics covered in this short book. We've already spoken about the Acheulean hand axe and Dunbar's number, but you also cover topics as diverse as Bayesian probability, Alvin Toffler, Will Ferrell, charitable giving, the Bantu dispersal, and there's several pages on Gilligan's Island, as well as lots of great vignettes from your job at the Middleton Theater, which I'll, I'll save for the reader. I don't want to spoil any of that. They're really comical. The book is The Acceleration of Cultural Change from Ancestors to Algorithms. I've been speaking with Dr. Alex Bentley. It's a great book. I recommend it to all of our listeners. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 